But my philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Strength of solidarity. The strength of solidarity. Divided is our nation, combating and fighting hatred. The mission, should you choose to accept it, is fighting racist. Psychology is just a space where we run in our simulations. We load you up with the tools, then we plug you into the matrix. So have a seat on the couch, now tell me your situation. Take a look in the mirror, be honest, just who you facing. Marginalized as a youth, what challenges were you faced with? Feeling you wasn't equal, told that you wouldn't make it. Your idea isn't real, got you constantly trying to fake it. Hiding behind masks in the closet till you can't take it. Getting harder to Someone's choking you on the pavement Unspeakable violence attacking you cause you Asian Accomplices, we accomplish through collaboration Engaging, educating, evaluating one another Liberating the future of all our sisters and brothers Empowering, elevating all communities of color Strength and solidarity The strength and solidarity The Strength and Solidarity podcast is a conversational piece that invites scholars, community activists, leaders, artists, and entrepreneurs to discuss their work as accomplices in cultivating cross-racial ethnic solidarity. Hosted and produced by Pujamami Dana and Dr. Dana Demenari, our podcast team also includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios and Petra Zabroga. The Strength and Solidarity podcast strives to engage, educate, evaluate, and empower communities of color one episode at a time. Our guest on today's podcast episode is with Dr. Reiko Troop, who was born in Niigata, Japan, 1933, and immigrated to the United States in 1958. She completed a social work master's program at the University of Berkeley and worked for seven years for Alameda County Mental Health Services. She then completed a doctorate in clinical psychology at the California School for Professional Psychology in San Francisco. Her career, which spans nearly 60 years, has been devoted to advancing culturally and linguistically appropriate Asian and minority mental health services. She joined forces with a concerned group of Asian Pacific Islander activists to seek funding and created Asian Community Mental Health Services in Oakland, California, the first of its kind in the country. She joined the National Institute of Mental Health in 1975 and was instrumental in helping to develop a statewide network of Hispanic and Native American communities. After leaving the National Institute of Mental Health, she served as the first female and minority director of mental health and substance abuse services in San Francisco, overseeing a large mental health, substance abuse, and forensic medical and psychiatric service system throughout San Francisco. At the time of the Loma Pieta earthquake in 1989 in San Francisco, she was charged with organizing the citywide disaster mental health assistance initiative. Using her experience with San Francisco Disaster Assistance, she went to Japan as a Fulbright Scholar in 1996 to help the Japanese victims of the Great Kansai Oaji earthquake 
and to train Japanese mental health professionals on disaster mental health assistance. In 1997, after Dr. Christine Hall, she was elected as the second female president of the Asian American Psychological Association. After retiring from San Francisco Public Health Department, where she worked from 2002 to 2015, she helped create and directed a master's program in psychology in Tokyo to improve the level of psychological care provided in Japan. In addition to her public service, she has also maintained a private practice counseling clinic in San Francisco in Japantown. Hi, Dr. True. Thank you so much for being here with us today on our podcast. So our goal for this podcast is to honor our roots and amplify the art of storytelling, much like how knowledge and wisdom are passed down in our communities. We'd like to pay homage to our ancestors, our grandparents, our elders, our parents, aunties, uncles, and anyone in our family and chosen family. We'd love for our guests to share what is important to them and for us to know what led them in their life's journey as a healer, scholar, leader, and or activist. I'm really honored and delighted to be part of this project. And I'm really looking forward to sharing with you my own story. We're looking forward to that. And again, thank you so much for, you know, um, spending your Saturday, well, morning, your time, afternoon, my time today. Uh, truly, truly an honor to have you here today. So um, with the first question, we're very much interested, um, Pooja and I were talking about this, and we are just in awe with, you know, with who you are, you're a legend to me. Um, I actually have one of your uh, postcards. <laughs> I have one of your postcards. And uh, you know, we want to hear from you, you know, what your journey has been like as a woman of color, um, you know, in your graduate program and onto your professional career. What was your journey like? Well, thank you. Shall I start? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, I didn't realize I was a woman of color because I grew up in Japan and, uh, you know, we were all colored, <laughs> we were all Japanese. Um, but uh, my uh, uh, experience in Japan really strongly uh, defined my path uh, as I grew up. Um, as you know, Japan is one of the Asian countries with very, very strong tradition of patriarchy. Mm. So that women really are expected to follow as they are child, they follow their father, as they get married, follow their husband, and as they get older, follow their son. And so they really are not expected to have their own kind of a initiative or desires. Uh, their role is to serve the needs of the males. And yet my family, uh, my family uh, is a Homa family, uh, has some extraordinary women. And they strongly influenced me as I chose my path. Uh, one of them is uh, my aunt, who was a brilliant physician, but uh, she was held up 
uh, as by a very conservative community that we live in, as someone not to follow. So the, oftentimes people around me would say, don't be like your aunt, because she is just defying the uh, role of a woman. She was a brilliant physician and she was instrumental in really making a big advance in treating tuberculosis, uh, which was prevalent in that region uh, and you know, prevalent in Asia in many countries. And so as she did her uh, uh, accomplishment, many doctors from other Asian countries came to learn from her about how she really did this uh, prevention of tuberculosis and treatment. And the other women that had strong impact on me was my mother, who I think was a very bright woman, but was uh, followed, uh, was kind of really uh, followed the tradition and was married, married to a very selfish um, uh, man. And that she really had to subsume her own kind of desires, interests, and ambitions to you know the needs of her husband and the children to us, my brother and myself. But she, you know, really drilled in me, uh, instilled in me the joy of uh, learning, studying. So that was like she would do anything to really help me and my brother. Uh, find ways of uh, learning. When things were very hard in Japan during the war and after the war, well, it was really very economically hard, but my mother tried her best to really make it possible for me. So those are the two women who really kind of gave me some permission to follow my own desires, even though all around me, Japanese societies really discouraged women's initiatives. So that's where I come from. What did okay. you? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think, I think Dr. and I, I mean, Dr. Donna and I can, in our own subjective life experiences, um, can relate to some of the dynamics that you've spoken about, like within your culture and within your family system. And I mean, I'm from India and it is also a very patriarchal, um, society and you know just within the family system also and just broader society there's a lot of gender roles and women their voices are generally not heard as much um, so it's very inspiring to hear how your aunt and your mom played such a pivotal role in um, you know your identity development thank you yeah and I, how I, I went into a helping profession uh, and especially uh, kind of meeting the needs and of women. Uh, it's because my mother was a, a victim of domestic violence. And uh, it really strongly kind of instilled with me that uh, I would want to do everything I can to help. You know, if I couldn't help my mother, I wanted to help other women who are abused and, and really under distress. So that's, we think, really, uh, directed me into the helping profession. Hmm. I came to U.S. when I was 28, and uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't have any preparation as a, a 
for profession here in U.S. I was an English major, which was useless. But and English is a mother language here in this country. But I met a couple of wonderful women uh, bosses, mentors, who urged me that I should really go into a profession and that she suggested, well, social work is one, you know, you've spent two years in master's program and you can become, a, 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 you can help people. And that's what, how I started out as a social worker. And then after about 10 years, I realized I needed a lot more. I needed to learn more. And that's when I decided to go back into graduate school and pursue psychology as uh, uh, my final profession. And how was your experience in graduate school um, for psychology, Dr. True? You know, I hear so much about the uh, problems that people encounter in the traditional graduate schools. I've heard, mm -hmm. you know, a number of women of color psychologists talk about how they were such minorities and how they were really uh, met with all kinds of uh, barriers. Well, I went to, uh, it's uh, California School of Professional Psychology and it was a few years, a few years when it got started in California as mm -hmm. a way against the traditional psychology. So my class was full of minority and full of uh, teachers who are really uh, open to all kinds of new ideas. So I had lots of colleagues, uh, you know, not just women, but other uh, male colleagues who are wonderful and un the understanding of women's issues. And, you know, we all shared our concerns about being a minority. So, you know, it was a wonderful, really nurturing uh, graduate uh, school experience, which is contrary to many others who went to the, the very traditional established mm -hmm. graduate school programs. I am actually uh, very happy that you said that because we have this connection. I graduated from Alliance International University myself. Oh, you did? <laughs> I did, wow. I went to the Fresno campus. Wow. Yeah. So when you said Wonderful. that, and I, I also know about that, I'm like, oh, that's how we connect. And Pooja <laughs> <laughs> is currently a grad student at Alliance. Oh, you are. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm in I'm in my third year of my PhD program. And actually, I moved to the US when I was 23 to pursue my MFT um, at California School of Professional Professional Psychology. And <laughs> that's when kind of how I began my journey but um no it's nice that you know we're all from that school but wow um, yeah <laughs> wonderful hi hi sisters <laughs> hi I know we're sisters in that regard I love it <laughs> I know we had our programs had lots of uh, you know opposition from mm -hmm. a, a regular old-fashioned psychologist and and, you know, we survived and thrived and mm -hmm. we have lots of uh, uh, minority leaders who came out of that program. Yes, yes. We really have. And um, yeah. a lot of our um, AAPA leaders are faculty at yes. Alliance right. or, or right. Dean. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Deborah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, my my first clinical supervisor, also Dr. Helen, was also part of California oh, School of yeah, Professional yeah, Psychology. Yeah. So, yeah. it's it's and it's it's nice to have so many of our elders and like mentors also, you know, go through that as well. So, Dr. True, um, we are also kind. We also know that you were. Um, the first woman president of AAPA and um, the Asian American Psychology Association. So can you share a little with us about, you know, how you kind of got into leadership and what made you want to run for president and what that journey was like for you with an AAPA? Thank you. I need to make a correction. <laughs> I'm not the first woman AAPA president. The first okay. AAPA president is Dr. Christine Ijima Hall. I'm so sorry. Thank you for correcting me. No, no. But so we, we really need to acknowledge her leadership. Yeah. And after she, almost when she was through with her presidency, she called me up and urged me to run for presidency. And it didn't occur to me about running uh, because I was very busy at the time. I was running a, a program uh, in San Francisco, huge mental health service and substance abuse service system for the whole San Francisco. And it was just a tremendously stressful work. And right after that, I uh, uh, took uh, um, uh, half a year to go to provide assistance in uh, Kobe uh, for the, the, when they had a great disaster uh, in Kobe. So, you know, I was really busy, but then when I came back and when uh, Dr. Hall urged me to run. I thought, well, you know, if uh, and Christine really felt that she made a difference and that this perhaps it's about time women did serve as a leader. So I was the second uh, by, uh, president of AAPA. And AAPA was originally a very male psychologist dominated organization. But they made a, a big change by that time that I ran. And so we had a wonderful board of directors. The vice president at the time was Rich Lee, Dr. Rich Lee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we had a wonderful partnership together. Um, thank, thank you so much um, for like sharing the history of AAP because you're absolutely right. It's important for us to honor and like get that information correct. So thank you for correcting me. And um, we actually did have Dr. Richley um, on a previous episode um, yeah. along with his brother recently. So yeah, I hear. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier when uh, before we started the, the podcast, we were just chit-chatting and I was just telling Dr. True, you know, uh, the previous uh, guests that we've had in our podcast. Um, Dr. The, True, I the was... other thing, the other thing I would like to mention also uh, is the role of uh, Dr. Alice Chan. Have you heard of her? Yes, yes. Um, during my presidency, uh, Dr. Chan proposed, along with other, uh, I think, psychologists, that we create a division of women in AAPA, mm -hmm. uh, and there was no division in AAPA at the time. Mm -hmm. And there was quite a bit of opposition uh, for doing that. And, you know, uh, some of us women feel maybe it was because it was uh, proposed as a division of women. 
but the reason they opposed was that then, you know, we would not be able to be united together, that having a division would divide up the AAPA. Well, you know, we, we kind of uh, overcame that opposition and now we have quite a few divisions and mm -hmm. we are thriving because of those divisions. Yeah. yeah. And we have a division of Southeast Asian, uh, mm -hmm. correct? And yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, that recently came about in AAPA and also like the division on international students yes. and practitioners is yeah. um, something um, that also recently came about last yeah. year. Right. And yeah, um, I've attended some of the, I mean, that's how I met you, Dr. Trugan, one of the um, DOW socials that Dr. Shari Wang held and yes. also like attending AAPA conferences um yeah like DOW hosts like you know um certain presentations and I've ha I've had a little education on like the history of how that division was kind of formed and <laughs> the nuances that kind of came with that yeah 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 so. you mentioned also um well you mentioned the opposition of having a division on uh on women um were there any other challenges during your presidency that that happened because I can imagine there would be. Well, the challenges, or I think what I saw as need, is that you know the AAPA by that at that time was really dominated by Chinese and mm -hmm. Japanese uh, male psychologists, and I just saw that you know the Asian Americans in in US at that time was, you know, really there's an increasing number of other Asians, including Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, Southeast Asians, South Asians. So, you know, we felt that there's need for including a lot more Asians. And that was really, was really a very, very difficult, slow start. But now, I mean, I'm, I'm just so delighted that, that we have such wonderful, active, uh, uh, other Asian Pacific Islander, well, not so much Pacific Islander, but you know, Asian, multi-Asian mm -hmm. uh, ethnic uh, uh, representations in our division uh, AAPA. It's wonderful. So those are the were that was the main challenge at the time. Yeah. How were you able to overcome those challenges? Uh, you know, really reaching out to. Uh, uh, to other communities, uh, uh, not just uh, not just trying to really uh, in the uh, graduate level, but really you know, kind of spreading the words of psychology and mental health to uh, a variety of Asian American communities, so that there would be more students who are become interested and more families who are supportive of uh, kids going into psychology. I think, yeah. I think, you know, so many of the Asian parents, families had no idea what psychology was all about and that they, they did not consider that as a, you know, a successful, uh, promising career for, for, for their children. But I think now, there's much greater understanding and, and appreciation for the psychology, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So Dr. Chu, something we are like very curious about and also very grateful for is your involvement with communities of color is very extensive. And thank you for all that you've done and all that you do. And we've learned that your advocacy work started around the late 1964s and it preceded your work with communities hit by disaster. So we'd love to hear about your experience with how your community works, specifically working with survivors of natural disasters in other countries began and what that experience was like. Okay. Um, you know, 64, if you remember, is when there was a very strong uh, anti-war and mm. student activist uh, days. And I graduated from UC Berkeley School of Social Work. And that UC Berkeley was a, the center of all uh, the student activism. And I met quite a few uh, activist students and uh, Asian Americans were still much lagging behind African American and Hispanic American activists. But we learned from them about need to really speak up when there's a need for in our community. And out of that, uh, we, formed our within our own Asian American community activism. So to create services that were really not available, like in you know uh, Asian American community, we had nothing really. So it was uh, many of us uh, students, former students who uh, created new agencies. Uh, if you know, live in the Bay Area, now it's an established agencies like Asian Health Services and uh, uh, Chinatown Child uh, Development Services, RAMS, all yeah. those were created around that time by the activism. And you know, I've learned from that about a collaboration among us ourselves and, uh, and how we can really convince uh, uh, the decision maker, makers by speaking up, uh, advocating, and being <laughs> firm about it, which I think, you know, for Asian women like myself, is something I needed to learn to really speak up. And uh, I've learned it from other uh, minority leaders, and it's been a tremendous experience for me. Uh, within American Psychological Association, there's been wonderful. Um, minority leaders, uh, African-American leaders, and Hispanic leaders who really helped change the, the uh, uh, texture of American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe some of you, quite a few of our AAPA leaders came from a, a program called Minority Fellowship Program. Yes. Rich Lee is one of them and quite a few other um, Sumi Okazaki, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Connie Chen, uh, Chris Hall, Donna Nagata, you know, there are lots of them. Uh, Fred Dion, they all came from Minority Fellowship Program. And I was fortunate enough to be on that committee very early on in 1978. That was ancient history, isn't it? But <laughs> So out of that, we have so many wonderful leaders. So I learned from that about the importance of really nurturing uh, uh, people who can understand their own culture, who speak, who can speak for their culture, who can speak their language. You know, mental health services 
up to that point was so much white uh, dominated, English dominated uh, program. And they, you know, they didn't see the need for bilingual uh, programs, uh, bicultural programs. And uh, that really changed over, you know, over that period. And that's what I learned in doing disaster mental health. Um, San Francisco Bay Area was hit by a big earth, uh, uh, disaster called Loma Prieta earthquake, which uh, hit San Francisco and Bay Area very badly. And I was the director of uh, the city of mental health and substance abuse services. And I had to organize citywide uh, disaster mental health assistance. And uh, what I learned from that is that you just could not just sit and, and expect people to come for services at a clinic. You had to go out into the community. Mm. You had to reach out to the minority community. You had to pro find programs that is uh, culturally appropriate and have staff that spoke the language of the community. And that meant, you know, uh, not only Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, uh, but Southeast Asian. At that time, we didn't have in much South Indian <laughs> professionals at the time, but we also tried to reach out to Hispanic communities and African-American communities, all based in the communities, instead of expecting them to come to clinics and also do a lot of education, community uh, understanding about how with disaster that you are uh, very likely, even if you are very healthy, that you have lots of scary uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndromes that you know with help they can overcome. So these are the things that uh, I needed to work with my colleagues and provide, and also really had lots of volunteers uh, to provide services closer to the community of color. And I learned that out of that, I was able to do the same uh, when Japan was hit with a big Kobe earthquake. So I went to Japan and, and at that time, they didn't know anything about disaster mental health. And so I had to start from the scratch about how really to provide disaster mental health, not only to the professionals, to the community that it's it's really normal to have all these scary you know symptoms after the disaster so those are the things i uh was able to do and uh, accomplish during the disasters that is a lot of hard work <laughs> and this but is why you're a legend <laughs> this is why you're a legend <laughs> it was a very exciting hard work but exciting work yeah and lots of us come together. Yeah, lots of yeah. lots of collaboration. Yeah, I like I like how you really spoke about you know that collaboration piece where it started first when you graduated from like Berkeley and like when you actually while you were at Berkeley and your activism work kind of began there. And I think something that really stood out to me from what you shared was how you really learned from other communities like the African-American community, the Latinx community, and y'all came together to really support one another, which is kind of the whole goal of our task force and this podcast that, you know, there is strength in solidarity. And on that note, we kind of want to know, like, if you want to hear from you, 
so in our task force, we're, we're not using the word um, ally anymore. And um, Dr. Coakley has um, kind of helped us understand the word accomplice. And so we were wondering, mm -hmm. like in, in you know, all your work that you were doing back then, how would the word ally or accomplice be perceived like 25 years back then? <laughs> 25 or, or almost 45 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm very bad at math. So thank you for correcting me. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't have the stigma in those days, you know. So it was allies were allies. We helped each other. I don't think we used accomplice. I, maybe accomplice may be a little more kind of have stigma, but we didn't use those words in those days. Yeah, uh, we used, uh, you know, um, allies, uh, uh, colleagues. Uh, yeah, I think more, um, yeah, those were, you know, um, allies were more, much more positively perceived, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is there, is there some stigma about it now? Um, I think the reason, well, the reason why uh, we're using the word accomplice rather than ally, um, because accomplice has more, it's more action oriented uh, rather than something that's passive. Because you can be an I, ally and maybe tweet uh, out like, oh, I support, for instance, Black uh, Lives Matter. But what exactly are you doing to support uh, it? Yeah, I see. I see. Well, so in my, uh, I would say, I, did I use the word allies a lot? I had wonderful uh, colleagues uh, who were, you know, not only supportive in uh, thoughts, but they were mm -hmm. all very activists. Mm -hmm. We all worked together. And, you know, some of my friends, uh, when I was, uh, uh, I had a major crisis in my career, when uh, I was, uh, about to be appointed as a director of mental health and substance abuse services, uh, they uh, they thought I was I came number one at on a civil service examination, and the mm. rule of the civil service examination is that they have to appoint from the top three, and I was <laughs> an Asian and I was a woman. There was never a director who was a woman and never a director who was a woman of color. So there was a great deal of uh, public opposition questioning my competency. And uh, my friends really you know, said, Reiko, you just cannot uh, you know, accept this kind of, uh, they were, there was public discussion on, on radios and TV about how this panel was biased towards minority. And uh, that I couldn't possibly be the director, but my uh, my uh, it's it's mainly Asian American uh, allies, but I think an African American community, Hispanic community also were supportive. But my um, colleagues and allies have said, Reiko, you just cannot just accept this. They went on public demonstration and they spoke up, uh, they, you know, Chinese for affirmative action, have you heard of them? They, no. you know, was strongly oppos opposing the, these negative racist uh, opposition. So, you know, I was finally appointed the director and 
And there was a lot of question about whether I'm able to run a program when always every year they had a deficit of uh, running deficit of about three, four, five million dollars every year. <laughs> and it turns out that I had really wonderful uh, staff who, and we came up with ideas about how to really uh, look at alternative programs and create alternative programs. So we actually came in with a surplus, uh, this increased revenue so that there was no deficit, but there was actually surplus of about $5 million. So, so there was no opposition after that. <laughs> so, but, you know, so my allies uh, in those days were really activists. They did not hesitate to speak up. They did not hesitate to demonstrate because that's what it took. Uh, the the uh, decision makers really are sensitive to public uh, outcry. So, you know, as Asian Americans, I think we tend to be fairly, you know, uh, law abiding and fairly kind of uh, reserved about making demands. But I think that's that's something we need to learn from our other uh, 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 people of color who really are very affirmative about speaking up about their needs and about their opposition. And I think Asian Americans have learned uh, from that. I think now we have wonderful speakers and wonderful leaders who really are able to uh, speak for, for our needs and our issues. So I'm just very proud of them. I I thank you for sharing for sharing that story. I um you know I resonated with uh you know your experience where where it seems like you have to work twice as hard to prove <laughs> that you belong in that space. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I'm 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 so happy that you know you fought and you advocated for yourself and you also had the support system because there's really strength in numbers and mm -hmm. it really takes like you know our community support to also like get us through and to be able to kind of survive in this field and you know even though we're talking about your journey that happened many many years ago and like people like you and others that you've mentioned like have paved the way for like you know, this generation, like my generation and the future generation. And sadly, it's it's something that we still see, though, and we're still living with. And, you know, as a young, like, woman of color who's also very passionate in leadership and has started her leadership journey, like, very early on in my career, it's something I still, like, not to that extent, but, like, at my graduate program or at like practicum or even in leadership positions I hold I've always been that young leader and so it's been really difficult and like challenging to like navigate but um, what has also helped and what I resonated with is finding that community to kind of support you and get you through and absolutely yeah absolutely yeah I also like the, you know, how uh, you've really weaved in uh, your scholarship and community activism 
you know, into one that your scholarship is not just for the sake of getting published and doing all of this, but really to help the community. And that to me is, you know, what I'm, I'm, what I'm striving in my own career, you know, to be a scholar activist. And uh, I look up to you for that. So, you know, I I do thank (laughs) you for the work that you pay for, you know, women of color. Um, (laughs) Thank you. But it's a challenge, isn't it? It Oh, yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, No, I I similarly, like I'll send, I don't know if I sent you this already, but I actually have your postcard that I also got from AAPA. And (laughs) that's the only postcard I kept from the others that I kind of wrote letters (laughs) to other people. And I've actually stuck it on my vision board, like above my study table. So like right now, right now I can actually see that postcard. And like the quote (laughs) on that is, the yearning to learn is a tremendous growth motivating factor. And I feel like I'm in a dream right now because I'm seeing that postcard and then like, you know, Dr. Donna and I are like seeing you live and um, no, you, you truly are, you and like many others are the reasons where we're like, no, our elders have paved this way for us and we need to continue, you know, our activism for our future generations because the youngsters are also our future leaders and yeah. Wow, wonderful, wonderful. I'm just so excited. I mean, you are, both of you are really starting out early and with confidence and it's it's just really great to see you. Thank you. Yeah. So with a lot of the community activist work that you've done, Dr. True, Uh um, what do you think, where can we go from here? do you think like where can we go to improve upon or even to continue the work of you know scholars who have paved the way for this current generation um how can we be better allies better accomplices well (laughs) (laughs) i think you know do continue with what you're doing you are really uh gathering together, uh, collaborating with uh, other uh, people of color, which is, I think it's the, the, the diversity that you really embrace, I think is just really absolutely necessary. I think it's wonderful that you are speaking up and you have to continue to speak up about your issues, about your needs of community. And that, you know, always, be sensitive to what your community needs, not just your own kind of professional, you know, career needs. I think that's, it's hard when there's so much pressure on your career, mm-hmm. but then I think what is important is to really not lose sight of the needs of your own community. Um, I think it's, you know, it's really um, important that you uh, kind of share your ideas with your um, colleagues, your um, your what is it, accomplices? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and really, also, you know, uh, uh, and and come uh, join forces to really keep continue to advocate. There's, there's so much more that needs to be done in our community, and there's going to be 
with you know that times are getting harder. There's so much ominous kind of a trend in our country, which is really depressing. You know, we thought yeah. we made some progress, and then I think maybe we are going backward. So mm-hmm. it's all the more important that we need to really stay together, collaborate with each other, and really uh, fight and assert ourselves. That's that's what I think is absolutely ne- needed to really. Uh, make it through this very difficult time that's ahead of us. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Yeah. The, yeah, it, I, I think <laughs> um, something that I've just learned in just my seven years of being in psychology <laughs> is um, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we have to think of our community and that's where we should start within ourselves, within our community. And also think about, you know, the broader community, like other communities of color and like coming together because something that, you know, we've just noticed like being in our positions and in the roles that we have in our lives is even like within AAPA or like APA, um, even though we all come from like minoritized communities, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of microaggressions that happen just amongst ourselves, which is really not needed. And um, I think that's something, you know, in our leadership or like the goal of like this podcast or like our projects Mm -hmm. that we're doing through the task force is really to kind of break those barriers and to kind of take a step back and understand that, hey, we all want the same things at the end of the day. And, you know, we're so few of us and at some point we need to kind of understand that we're all fighting the same fight in different ways, in different subjective ways, but we have that larger communal goal. Good for you. I mean, you really, you articulated that so well. Yeah. And I'm just so encouraged by, you know, you, when you are really still in the graduate school and you're already way ahead of, uh, you know, so I think in a way, your awareness, your uh, kind of willingness to take on that leadership role, that's really wonderful. So keep it up. Yeah. Thank you. But sorry, go ahead, Dr. Donna. Oh, I was just going to say, Pooja is one of our board of directors in AAPA, <laughs> just to give her that plug. So <laughs> definitely. Wow. Thank uh, so yeah. Much. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, it's busy enough, but you're able to take on that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And I mean, honestly, it's it's because I have good mentors in the field who are teaching me about these things, who are teaching me how to use my voice and, you know, who are inspiring me. Like Dr. Helen is like my role model. And, um, absolutely. you know, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't even be part of AAPA. I wouldn't even know how to get involved because, you know, as you mentioned earlier too, when you come from an Asian country and when you immigrate into like a foreign country, mm-hmm. you're starting to learn how to like use your voice, but then you're also dealing with all the oppression that comes with the ways your identities intersect. And, I was very lucky that she was my first clinical supervisor I met here in California. And, you know, through that, I met like mentors through DOSA, like Dr. Nita Tiwari. And, you know, like through the through AAPA conference planning, I met Dr. Donna and, you know, here we are. So and then obviously, like, I've heard so much about you, Dr. True, even before, like I met you physically, but like from Dr. Helen, like when we'd first talk about (laughs) 
like leadership and she'd speak like very highly of you so it's <laughs> it's what our elders have kind of done for us and you know having mentors in the present moment kind of guide us because it's very scary to do this on your own absolutely absolutely so you're you're on the right track and i'm just so excited about what you are able to accomplish so i will really you know i'm just excited about this podcast i mean i'm just so technologically not savvy but i will <laughs> i'm getting getting a little hang of the podcast and i really look forward to you know more podcasts from our other leaders so yeah. thank you yeah. for taking this initiative to do this project we will, yeah. yeah we will definitely let you know once we've uh publish uh our podcast so it's a lot yeah. of them are in post production but we will yeah. definitely you know yeah. uh send them your way if you'd want to listen <laughs> thank you yeah. thank you very much and i i think just you know to end and like thank you so much for your time and just for being here like it's it's just so amazing that we were able to meet with you and just have this conversation with you and i think just you know as a young leader as young leaders we we just also kind of want to leave our listeners with any words of any final words of wisdom you have for women of color getting into leadership roles and any words of wisdom you want to leave us with <laughs> not words of wisdom but you know uh, what i would say is uh, you're on the right track and don't kick, don't get you know really uh, shy about really speaking up be assertive work together collaborate be confident you know so uh the way future is there's so much to be done and i'm just so excited for you guys to continue the the uh, path that we started so I look forward to be uh working with you in the future. I'll be there when you if you need me. So thank, thank you, you so, much so much for taking the initiative. Yes, no, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much Dr. True. It was, I, yeah. I'm so sorry. Absolute, no, I was just going to say it. we're so excited that like we normally never talk <laughs> over each other but like you can see our excitement. <laughs> <laughs> we it, it, it's just an honor that we that we had to that we were able to do this with you so thank you so much thank yeah. you i really Great. hope to see you in future aapa conventions as well i hope so i hope so that we can meet in person yes soon. and take and take pictures because you know it's not real meeting unless there's a picture to prove <laughs> that we've met <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for tuning into our podcast today we hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information about today's guests and their social media links, you can click on the description links of the episode. Pooja Mami Dana and Dr. Dana Demanarik host this podcast. Our podcast team includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios from the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, and Petra Zadroga from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. We also want to acknowledge our production team, David DeVito and Rachel Sheffer. If you would like to know more about us or to watch video clips of this interview, then follow us on Instagram at APADiv45 underscore Presidential Task Force, on Twitter at APADiv45 underscore Coakley, or 
on YouTube and Facebook at Dr. Kevin Coakley, APA Division 45 Presidential Task Force. Strength and solidarity. The strength and solidarity.